Well, now's my chance to say good morning to you all. It's been a while since I've stood, shoot, it's been a long time since on Sunday I was fully dressed, you know? It's, <laughs> it's been very, very strange for all of us. And um, I was a little worried that I'd like break down and cry when I saw all your faces. But, uh, but luckily there's a lot of funny masks, so I'm still doing okay, but... It's good to be together. This morning, we're jumping right into Scripture. So if you've got your Bibles, you turn to Ezekiel chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's all right. We're going to put it up here as we go. Uh, We're going to do a big picture uh, look at the book of Ezekiel. So we've been looking at chapters 1, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 36, and chapter 37, which sounds like a lot, but it's not, all right? We're going to do big picture stuff on this. So as we begin, as we open up, let's turn this thing on here. See what kind of technical difficulties we... Look at that, right out the gate. Verse 1. When I was 30 years of age, I was living with the exiles on the Kabar River. On the fifth day of the fourth month, the sky opened up and I saw visions of God. That's an auspicious beginning. It means that you, like Ezekiel, are about to enter into visions of God. And I can't... Wait to see what that might be. I'm excited about it. What's a vision of God look like? Well, this is, this is a classic opening for what we call an apocalyptic text. I know you've heard the word apocalyptic or apocalypse. You've probably heard it over this, this period of time. Usually when we use that word, we mean destruction or the end of the world or doom or some kind of thing that is, that is coming and it's terrible. That's not actually what the word apocalyptic means at all. In fact, the word apocalyptic is a technical term. It's a word for a genre of literature. A genre of literature in ancient times and even today too. But within scripture we have Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation. These are apocalyptic texts. And we use the word apocalypse or apocalyptic in modern parlance, the way we talk as doom and gloom, because apocalyptic texts use symbols of fire and blood and smoke and doom and gloom to communicate their message. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had something happen in your life that was such a big event, such a big moment, that you said that was earth-shattering? Ever say that before? That's earth shattering. Now, did you mean that the earth cracked open and swallowed your house or your job or your family? No, of course that didn't happen, but it sure did feel that way, didn't it? There are times in our lives when it sure feels like everything is burning, everything is dark, there's nothing but smoke, you can't see anything at all, that everything is shaken and your feet aren't firm or sure, that everything is unstable. And so the apocalyptic genre uses these symbols, these images, these metaphors to communicate the experience of people who are hurting and to communicate how total the change that God is bringing onto whatever system he's referencing, whether he's talking about an empire, a nation, the temple, a person, whatever it is. It's so big that it is earth-shattering. And so it uses those language, that kind of language. But Ezekiel itself is not supposed to be hard to understand. In fact, the very word apocalyptic literally means, if you translated it into English, unveiling, revealing, showing. And so what you see when you look into Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation is a lot of bizarre images. But that's because Ezekiel is trying to show you. 
He's trying to help you to see because by seeing a new kind of vision, your imagination itself, the way you understand and perceive the world can actually shift and change because not only do our hearts need to be converted, but our imaginations need to be converted too. It takes a lot of imagination to believe that 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter was the literal son of God who defeated death and rose from the grave. It's a lot of imagination. We need our imaginations converted as well. And Ezekiel is doing that work. But it begins here, as you see, in pain. Where are they at? They're at the Kabar River, which is in case that doesn't mean anything to you, as I'm sure it doesn't, here's a, a, a site that we have, possibly a city that he could be specifically speaking of, but this river itself here in this region is called that. But you can see that here is where they're located in the big map, and Israel is all the way over here. They are in exile far away from their homeland. And that long trail of tears that they marched is marked in blood and bones and sorrow and disgrace and hate and anger and wondering, God, where are you? It feels like earthquake and fire and smoke and we can't see anything or understand why this is going on. God, where are you? We actually have something very special about this time that the Israelites were living in. A lot of your your psalms are the songs that the, the people would sing when they gathered together. And most of the psalms we don't have any dates for. We don't know the situation. There's only a couple that we really can tell what is going on when it was written and when it was sung. And this is one of them, a song that they sang. You can imagine them, actually. In fact, the situation is so, uh, so mundane. You've probably been there. How many of you have ever stood by a river with some friends and family? Church bells. It was church bells. That was fun. I haven't heard that since Tennessee. Huh. Anyway, uh, what was I saying? We're talking about psalms. Anyway, the psalms that uh, this is one of the psalms that they uh, that they sang. Psalm one thirty seven. You can imagine them gathered by the river to pray and to worship God together. And you know how singing always comes before the preaching, right? That's how it works. Even in a, I'm just kidding. I didn't really. I have no idea how it worked. But either way, you can imagine them gathering together and they begin to sing. And this is the song they sing. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. For on the willows there we hung our guitars. For there our captors required songs from us. Our oppressors and tormentors mirth, saying, sing us the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If you do not remember, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem as my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to the foundations. O daughter of Babylon, Doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you what you have done to us. Happy shall be the one who takes your little children and dashes them against the rocks. I'd love to hear Hillsong give us a tune for that one. I'm not sure that the Gaithers could actually resurrect that and make that palatable for us. 
But that is literally a song the people of God sang. And you can imagine them singing it here by the river in their bitterness and their anger and in their frustration. How many of us have ever said, I hope someone does to you exactly what you did to me? I've said it. I've had my parents say it to me, and now I'm suffering through it, right? We've all done this to some extent. At some point in time, you wish that. But how bitter would, ha- would it have to be for the last line of the song that we sing in church to be, happy will be the people who harm your children. That's a deep place of pain. And this is the people to whom Ezekiel has been sent to give a vision. So if we understand the the place where the Israelites are, where the people are standing, we can imagine Ezekiel stand up and say, I have a vision from God for you. I have a vision. I'm not going to start with all of the problems and all the stuff. I have a vision. You need to stop what you're doing and focus on God for a second. And he says this, the vision that pops forth begins with this. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire gleaming metal it was as if this whole thing is is on fire inside of fire inside of fire and out of this kaleidoscopic storm cloud that has become that's come rolling through his vision he sees coming out of it creatures cherubim who have legs like people, but the feet of calves that look like they're on fire, who have wings on each side, giant wings that unfurl, and arms that strip straight out from underneath those wings, two wings to cover their bodies, and their, uh, their faces, four faces of animals and beasts, switching completely back and forth. And these terrifying beasts are the ones who are pulling forth a chariot, only a chariot that you have never seen before. Its wheels, not like normal two-dimensional wheels, but rather gyroscopic wheels spinning within each other, and each wheel lined with blinking eyes, seeing every which direction it might go. And Ezekiel, as he sees this tremendous vision, he sees these gyroscopic wheels spinning and he sees that they reach not only from the ground but all the way up to this cloud he sees. And at that cloud, he sees the bed of it and above it, God, who sits upon it. And as he describes the sound and the vision, he says this, And when they went, when the cherubim go, I heard the sound of their wings. It was like the sound of the oceans crashing together. Like the sound of almighty. A sound like the wars of armies coming together. And when they stood still, deafening silence. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. And the appearance of sapphire and seated above the likeness of the throne was the likeness of a human appearance which is the most obscure description of anything that I've ever heard <laughs> it is the likeness of a human sort of i just i love that that god is so great and so other that to even get close to it ezekiel is a mile off as he tries to describe what it is that he's seeing. 
But as you know, this, this image is, is, is like God stepping onto this chariot. And, and as you know, chariots are meant for motion. They go somewhere. God is given this image that here is the chariot and the chariot is on the move. Now, this imagery is, is set that, so that God is stepping kind of out of the temple, the place of his presence. If you've remembered your Old Testament, that is where God's present rest, presence rested. It rested in the temple. And God is now stepping onto his chariot, and he is leaving the temple. Where is he going? Is he leaving because Israel has gone so far that he is done with them? Have their sins mounted up to such a great extent that he says, I'm out and I'm not coming back? Well, we really don't get to it until we get to chapter 10 of Ezekiel. And in chapter 10, you get a long, another description, a very complicated and beautiful description of the chariot. For sake of time, I can't read it all, but I encourage you to go back and look at it. But at the end of chapter 10, as he describes again this chariot that has picked up and moved from Israel, and now he describes where it is. He says, these were the living creatures that I saw. But where did he see them? They are not in Israel anymore. Now they are at the Kapar. Now they are with his people. That God got onto his chariot, this magnificent, otherworldly, massive, apocalyptic thing. He steps onto it and he leaves Israel to go to his people who are lost. That is what God has done. And that has to be amazingly good news for these people who are sitting in exile, who are wondering, God, are you done with us? Is the darkness really going to win? Is this really the final word? Are we left alone in this, in this spot? And Ezekiel says, I saw the chariot of God, and it left the temple to come meet us here. It's a powerful message. It reminds me of somebody we talk a lot about around here, doesn't it? Somebody who left all of his glory, abandoning all of his privilege, all of his position, all of his power, that he might come and bring to us good news. And that that good news was not entirely visible to us until we saw how far our sin would take us, so far that it would crucify not only the innocent, but God himself. And that God's love was so tremendously large that even when we nailed his arms apart, he still was able to bring them to us and gather us together into himself. It reminds me of what Paul says in one of my favorite passages of scripture. It's something I've held on to it for a long time because I kind of keep coming back to it and finding new deeper spots of truth in it. But he says, Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying. If the Bible tells you it's a trustworthy saying, well, you should trust it. <laughs> it's a trustworthy saying. Here it is. If we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I might put it this way, that God 
We are able to walk away from God, but God does not walk away from us. The Israelites are in a situation of their own making. Ezekiel is going to spend the next chapter, in fact, this, this is kind of where, where the, the chariot's going to drop off a little bit, and we're going to focus on something new. But before it drops off, he gives us a little message. Why has the chariot moved from, from Israel to the Kabar? Why has God moved from his place to his people? What is his intention? Is it just to be with them? Well, certainly that's part of it. But God says specifically in chapter 11 that he has come to gather them, to pull them from, from all of the places they've been scattered, scattered and bring them together, but specifically to do something new for them. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh. The Spirit, I will give them a new animating force, a new life force, a new way of being. Their hearts, which were hard toward one another, hard toward God. Their will, which is hard towards God will, God's will, and hard towards humility towards other. I'm going to take that hard heart, I'm going to pull it out, and I'm going to take a heart that beats, that's full of life and love and mercy and grace and all the things that we saw of Jesus, the things that make for peace, and I'm going to put it in their chest so that together they can beat and breathe with one Spirit. And one will and one great heart directed towards one another and God. That is why I have come. Not to leave you where you are. And not even necessarily to immediately bring you out. Because as Ezekiel delivers this message, they are still at the Kabar. They are not yet in Israel. And God says to these people who are in exile, who are still in their brokenness, he says, I am bringing a transformation that is happening within that will actually also transform everything else. For how you perceive the world changes how you interact with the world. And how you interact with the world changes the world, right? And that is what God is doing, drawing us to see that. That is what he is doing here. He is coming to bring that message. Well, as I said, this is where... Um, the, message, or the, the chariot sort of drops off the map. And we get a more, a more traditional breakdown of, of pronouncements about why they have found themselves in exile. But suddenly in chapter 36, so we've jumped from 11 all the way to chapter 36, we run into this verse all over again. Anytime the Bible quotes itself, you really want to pay attention. It's trying to tell us this is connected to this. This is connected to this. There's, there's a direct verbatim quote. If you look at the Hebrew, even the like little dots and points that make the Hebrew script are exactly the same. He says the same thing. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put it within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a beating heart, a real heart, a heart of flesh. Now, why has Ezekiel quoted himself again? Well, let me give the big picture here. Because he's trying to help us get a, a big view here. And so for the first section, we have this, this story, this narrative of, of the chariot that is going from God's place and presence in Israel now to his people that are lost and broken and alone. He says that the reason I have come is to, to bring you together and unify you, to fill you with a new spirit and to put in you a new heart. Then he gives some very 
candid explanations that include not only Israel, but lots of other nations, very oracles about God describing where, where they are, how they got there, and where they're going as well. And then in verse 36, we're all, or chapter 36, we're thrown again back to this new heart, new spirit, because Ezekiel is about to introduce the next vision. And the next vision is one of the most important visions in the Old Testament. It is the fullest picture we get in the Old Testament of the resurrection that we see in Jesus Christ and the resurrection that we're promised when Jesus Christ returns again. It's a vision of a valley, a valley that is full of dry bones. There's a, I want to put this picture up as I kind of talk about it and close. This is from an illuminated Bible, a, a modern illuminated Bible called the St. John's Bible. This is the text of Ezekiel 37. And this is an artist's rendition of the brokenness and an artist's rendition of the life. This he took from images that he looked at as he was uh, from the Holocaust. But as I was looking at this imagery of the death and destruction, I thought about all of the mass graves I've seen in my lifetime. I'm 37 years old. Many of you are older than me. How many mass graves have you seen pop on the news? How many dead bodies or people lying in the street, starving, death, all this sort of thing? I've seen so many open tombs full of hundreds of bodies that if I were watching the news and it came on, I wouldn't even blink. I wouldn't bat an eye. We are so used to this brokenness that this brokenness is the content of our imaginations. When we look at enemies, we see enemies. When Jesus looked at enemies, he saw the image of God. There's a difference in the imagination that happens here. It's calling us to to see with bigger eyes, to dream with bigger dreams, to believe for bigger things. When, when God brings Ezekiel, who is, who is in, in his body in that moment, standing at the Kabar River with all of these people who are moaning and crying out and saying, God, do to our enemies what, what they have done to us. And Ezekiel is somehow cast above all of it. And he sees the largesse of God And he sees how all of the the wars and the battles and the things that we have spent our lives for are so pitiful in light of God's grandeur and grace. His willingness to leave where he is, to come to where we are, even when we are the ones who put ourselves in that spot. And God takes Ezekiel by the hand and he drags him Across this valley, and he says, behold this valley. And that's exactly what Ezekiel sees. He sees bones, skulls, and femurs, and rib cages. And he goes trouncing through these bones, these bones of his own brothers and sisters from all of the herd and all of the years, all piled up. And he sees that they're not just bones. They're very dry bones. There is no marrow. There is no life. There is no nothing left in them. And God says, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel is smart. He says, Lord, you know, which is amazing equivocation, isn't it? Because you don't want to say yes, because your imagination, your mind knows that once the bone is dry, that bone is dead. 
Nothing can come of it. But telling no, no to God is like the worst thing you can do. Don't do it. So he says, Lord, you know. And the Lord takes his half-hearted faith and says, prophesy over the bones. So I prophesied. And there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together. Bone crunching into bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, flesh crawling up them, skin covering them. They had no breath. They had no life. Bodies, but inanimate. Bodies that are just laying there, waiting for something real, waiting for life, waiting for breath, waiting for God to awaken it to the reality of what he can do. And so God says to Ezekiel, prophesied breath so I prophesied and the breath came into them and they lived and they stood on their feet an army of God's resurrected ones and as Ezekiel speaks these words you can imagine the people sitting at the Kabar River and thinking of all that they've lost all that has broken them, all that they are frustrated and hurt. The past, the present, fear of the future, all of it present there. That Ezekiel, as he tells this message to them, knows that Monday will still be Monday. That their brokenness will still remain. That they are still in Babylon. That this promise has not yet come to pass. He knows that their families are still going to be broken, that you will still be you, except for this. Except for this. If you can allow your imagination to be converted along with your heart and your mind and everything else, when God asks you, can these bones live, you can say yes. That you can look at the things that everyone else says is broken and dead and not worth fixing and not capable of fixing. That whatever the situation is, it can't be touched. The answer that Ezekiel got wrong is this. With God, dry bones do live. And that is the truth from beginning to end of the gospel. The message of God from him to us, that we hold on to that great hope and allow the spirit of the living God to give us a renewed spirit and a new heart that we might come together and love and bear witness to the grace that we have met in God. Let's stand as we sing this last song together.